Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Spring is here, folks, and we're here to bring you the latest and greatest in consumer choice topics from around the world on Saga 960 AM on Coastal Carolina Network. I'm one half of your host, the Isle Osowski, coming to you from the home studio with a brand new blue screen in the back. And we're joined by David Clement, who's uh, sitting in the muck there outside of uh, Toronto, Ontario. <laughs> David, how goes it? It's going well. Going well. Rainy. But spring is officially here, so it's hopefully some more warmer weather on the horizon. Um, a lot going on. A lot going on. Um, Biden is in uh, in Ottawa. Uncle Joe uh, is actually spending the night in Ottawa. Um, not just coming and going. He's actually going to find, uh, find an orthopedic mattress uh, in the city of Ottawa. And- Ooh, that's an underhanded comment right there. um yeah i mean and then everything with han dong and him now resigning from liberal caucus and the accusations in global news did he back channel with the chinese and tell them to not let the two michaels go it's just like woof not um not good so we don't want to fr- um, we don't want to front load too much, but um, give us some insight on the yeah. uh, on the guest that we have uh, for this. We've got yeah. a wonderful program lined up for the listeners and uh, for those of you who are in the uh, Peel region in Ontario. Uh, something that could be very important for you. Yeah, we have a member of Parliament Nathaniel Erskine Smith, the MP for Beaches East York, who is also considering a run for leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Um, so he is a very interesting um, gentleman, certified friend of the show, certified. Um, just a real straight shooter. So I look forward to that. We talk about um, why he wants to make the move to provincial politics, what some of his key policy areas are. Talk about NIMBYs and YIMBYs, which is good. And uh, we do talk about foreign interference uh, as well. Uh, and he has some fairly strong um words in that regard all right yeah this is uh this is good uh you know making news on the consumer choice radio program is a it's a good thing so great yeah yeah great to have uh, so, member of parliament erskine smith who will join the program uh, later on um for those of you who um yeah are trying to make sense of what's happening on both sides of the border um believe me um, i'm not the only one i did see a hilarious tweet david and uh you know our, our recording uh set up now we, we're looking at tweets which is you know yeah. it's, it's what 98 percent of journalists are doing anyway while they're trying to work yes uh there's a great one by forget this fella he's uh i think he's in vancouver he's one of the writers at uh, national post <laughs> and it was about that cookie shop in ottawa oh, uh, the, the one where uh where I know. <laughs> obama for 20 minutes went to a place like hey where can i get a cookie and now the business its entire personality is just that obama stopped there to get a cookie once <laughs> Yeah, I've been there too, and I also bought a cookie. So yes, <laughs> it's so cringe. It's so cringe. Hey man, when Obama comes to town and he eats a cookie, you just you make it the Obama cookie store. You know, I, actually, that's a good point. Have you seen any Joe Biden ice cream places? I don't think so. What does that say about no? Yeah, the that's a the good country? point. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we are. Maybe the U.S. is as divided as Fox News suggest there you go vanilla chocolate <laughs> strawberry um so there's a lot of other stuff that you know we uh didn't get to talk about yesterday you know we we had um 
a great interview going back and forth and uh, the bank failures and the bank runs. Oh boy. Um, this stuff oh, is, yeah. is ongoing and um, a lot of calamitous things. Uh, what we can see in the, um, the world of, of cryptocurrencies is this, this kind of like very, I was, I'm going to say everyone's in working in concert, uh, but I'm seeing a lot of bank accounts being shut off, banking relationships being seized. And yeah. uh, there's an interview done on the daily which is this normally ridiculous... Your favorite podcast. It's a normally ridiculous podcast. Because you'd be in jail. Um, and they had uh, Barney Frank on. And Barney Frank was a former member of Congress uh, from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, he wrote the, uh, you know, part of the, the Frank Dodd, uh, you know, financial reforms yeah. after 2008. And uh, he was, yes, a, he he was a, an executive at um, Signature Bank, which is one of the banks that uh, went kaput. Yeah. Um, it did, but it's it's a funny circumstance. So th both them and Silvergate, you know, they serviced a lot of crypto company clients. And um, they were actually seized not by the FDIC, but by the New York state regulators. And they actually oh. didn't have a banking crisis in that moment. Um, they were just told they had to shut down. And then on, upon news of that, then all the people went to the bank and started withdrawing and started uh, transferring to other ones. So it's very interesting. And we'll have um, huh. hearings on that coming up very soon. Uh, Patrick McHenry, who's head of the House Financial Services Committee down, uh, he's from Gastonia, North Carolina. He'll be he'll be doing that. And then, of course, we've got some of the impact, you know, that's being felt in Europe. Uh, we had Credit Suisse, which I believe we had mentioned last week. And I think this stuff for a individual um, just has to be very perplexing. And, you know, we never, we've always, everyone's thought, you know, oh, the bank sucks, right? You got to pay a fee. You have an overdraft. Yeah. We've never thought, what if there's nothing in the bank, <laughs> right? We've never thought, yeah. well, what would happen if everybody went to the bank at one time and pulled the money? I mean, we saw all the clips from, you know, 1929. And, you know, many people, especially during the, the pandemic, just didn't know what to do with a lot of the money that they were getting, you know, whether it be in stimulus checks or something else. You know, what do I do with this? Invest in Bitcoin. Um, so, <laughs> great clips of, of Trudeau that I've lined up. Um, yeah, before we get into that, I, let's go to the, the federal Canadian politics thing, because uh, we were on and on about what's happening with the uh, investigation that will or will not happen um, Trudeau is looking very shaky nowadays in Parliament. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Handong has resigned. Everybody saw that coming. Uh, I think we're going to get a, pub, a full public inquiry now. There's just too much. Um, there's too much. And whomever it is who's leaking gives off the impression that they have more. Yeah, and that every time you there's like soft pedaling in Ottawa, they'll be like, okay, here's another one. And, and they're going to global one. news now, right? It's not just at Globe and Mail anymore. It seems like they're spreading correct. the leaks around, right? Uh, yeah, correct. But we don't technically know that they're the same person because this story about Han Dong had two sources. We don't know if those are in oh, those are the same people who had previously spoken to um, to the Globe and Mail. So, I mean, it's it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Um, yeah, I don't... 
I mean, it doesn't look good for Han Dong, all things considered. Um, so, I mean, you have the allegation that the Chinese consulate helped him win the nomination. Um, there are votes in the House of Commons where he voted immediately before and immediately after and missed a vote on a question about the Uyghurs in China. Ooh, I didn't know about that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, you now have it confirmed that a conversation was had between him and the consulate in regards to the two Michaels outside of official channels after they had been in prison for like 800 days without the PMO's office knowing. It doesn't look good. I mean, he is obviously still innocent until proven guilty. Um, and that's really important, but it does not look good. All right, here's a comparison, because right I, I think this is um perfect U.S. versus Canada crux. During the Trump administration, we had many leaks from intelligence agencies, right? FBI, uh-huh. all kinds of stuff, uh, CIA. You even have like somebody who was like pretty senior staff at the White House who wrote a book later that nobody read. Do you see that this weaponization, if I can use that term, of some of the intelligence agencies is perhaps not a good trend? Or do you kind of contend with it's gotten so bad that the spooks have had to kind of, you know, show their cards to, you know, tilt the scale a bit? You know, I'm of two minds of this. It's a bit, it's difficult, right? I mean, yeah, it's hard because it's it's not, this isn't your usual, like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's not great. It's not a very good precedent to set to, to have this stuff kind of go to the media. But at the same time, there is a threshold. Um, there is a threshold where things become concerning to a certain point where it invokes action. I mean, there are so many other levels of like, it, I, I think it's hard to separate viewpoints on the NSA and have that like color your lens on how you view CSIS. Yeah. Especially if you've watched the amazing CBC program intelligence, which I do recommend as <laughs> many times as I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, you I know, I have to, I have to only imagine, you know, I, you know, the espionage game. Um, I mean, we've, we've learned about these police stations that are in, you know, various parts of Canada in various cities. Um, I'd love to know what's going on inside of there. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I'd like to know from a journalistic point of view. I would not like to know from a, you know, an occupant <laughs> or, or, or somebody who's a quote unquote invited in. Um, but, you know, what do you think of all this happening at the exact moment that you have, um, at least in the financial world, everybody's focused on Putin meeting Xi Jinping, you know, perhaps yeah. there's uh, in talks of, of the dollar sinking, you know, you've got these two jamokes getting together and they might, you know, put together some kind of currency or, you know, it's, it's, it can't be a mistake that it's all happening at one time. This is the only thing I posit. <laughs> this is, this is you putting on your tinfoil hat a little bit. Uh, is it though? 
<laughs> well, this is a no. This is like CNBC front page. I mean, no, um, I, we do I know, know that the BRIC I, countries have wanted to form a monetary union for a while. Uh, we, yeah. we there's there's a run on American banks. Um, the dollar milkshake theory holds that a lot of currencies will sink down to the bottom, but a lot of people will seek refuge in the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Um, you know, or maybe it, they'll they'll put it all in the Canadian 100 uh, rubber board, and who knows? <laughs> I doubt that. I doubt. It. I mean, the Canadian <laughs> dollar, the Canadian dollar is probably going to tank again, like another two cents, if um, if the Bank of Canada doesn't increase by a quarter point, or if Biden doesn't like so, his ice cream in Ottawa, yeah, it'll definitely sink. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we have had the rates go up. The, we have, um, if I could be a finance bro for one second, uh, 25 basis points um, in the U.S. Yeah. and um, in Europe as well. And uh, from what I've understood, it's all going to make everything worse. Um, mess around with central banks. And, you know, I wish we could humanize this stuff a lot more because it's very boring to talk about the numbers and everybody's got different opinions yeah. on, on what can happen. Um, but yeah. stuff is going to be more expensive. Who knows if they'll get inflation under control and... Thankfully, winter is over. We'll say that. Yes. Yep. Winter is over. That's the one silver lining, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't... I mean, there's a lot of... Quite, like, realistically, they have the choice of following the U.S. in terms of rate hikes and inducing a recession or not following the U.S. and devaluing the dollar. It's like a lose-lose situation. Um, and there's a lot of people giving it, giving their thoughts on like where things are going to go and everyone is full of it. Nobody knows. I, I know I've griped about this before, but everyone is, nobody knows. I mean, Tiff Macklin didn't even know. He said that interest rates are going to stay low for a long time. And then 18 months later it was like, whoops, never mind. Well, that's why all these banks are failing. They all did too. They thought for at least 10 years <laughs> they'd be safe and, uh, uh... did it turn out that way but then again if we were all you know uh you know financial gurus we'd all be billionaires and um yeah you know we wouldn't have time to do consumer choice radio but it's fine not billionaires just yet uh, no but you know until then we we have hope we have hope and uh and some of the people who you know we have on the program and uh specifically looking forward to the next interview david um, that'll be in the next segment yep. and uh some more news that'll be coming back you guys stay tuned to consumer choice radio and uh, we'll be back after this with Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. And we are back on Consumer Choice Radio. Um, we now have uh, a repeat guest, certified friend of the show, uh, member of parliament for Beaches East York, and potentially the next leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Thank you for joining us on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Um, so before we get into uh, Ontario politics and, and why you you are interested in potentially leading um, the, the Ontario Liberals, I want to ask you about some of the changes that the party, the Liberal Party of Ontario, has made as of late and what that means for grassroots engagement, what it means for the party moving forward. So if you wouldn't mind just explaining to listeners some of those changes, because for anyone who follows the internal workings of politics, those changes can mean a lot of different things. 
So it's a little bit inside baseball, but it's worth knowing and it's worth understanding because it does lead to better grassroots engagement in my view. And before we made the changes at the recent AGM, the Ontario Liberal Party was one of the, the last political parties in this country to still have a delegated convention in the way that they select a leader. And in my view, that it's it keeps things too inside baseball. So you have members that are signed up, they vote for delegate, delegates, delegates head off to the convention, delegates off, obviously head up, end up voting for the leader, and, and there's bartering on the floor of the convention and, and, and all of that inside baseball. This opens all of that up, and we've moved away from that system to what is described as one member, one vote. It's weighted, though, so every riding is worth 100 points, and people will get to vote directly in their riding, their home riding, mm -hmm. for the next leader. And in my view, why that is important, and there are challenges to it in some ways that, that, that some people spoke out, but, but, but overwhelmingly, we're talking, I, I, I don't know, I, there were maybe a handful of people who, who wanted to see the old system stay. Overwhelmingly, the grassroots membership voted for change. And the reason they did is because we are in third place. We need to rebuild this party in a serious way, and we need to get back to basics in terms of engaging grassroots members and bringing new people into our party. Well, ensuring that potential leadership candidates can speak directly to the grassroots, new members can vote directly for the leader. It really does build that kind of grassroots engagement and that serious direct grassroots engagement that I think our politics overall needs, but certainly mm -hmm. the Liberal Party of Ontario needs desperately right now. It sounds somewhat familiar to how the federal conservatives um, do their leadership race. Is that a correct assessment? Uh, uh, most people. It is, yeah. Little... So the federal conservatives, the federal liberals, as I say, m most parties operate this way. The federal NDP do it slightly differently. They have one member, one vote, but they don't weight it. So you can mm -hmm. really dominate a particular part of the country and deliver votes in that way. Both the conservatives and liberals, I think, do a, a better job of this, which is to treat Kenora the same as Mississauga Center, the same as Windsor-Tecumseh, the same as Glengarry Prescott-Russell. And, and so there's a value to there's an incentive on every leadership candidate, as there should be, to go around the province or go around the country in the case of the federal parties and build grassroots support absolutely everywhere. And I, and I don't think there's any, there's, a, there's no substitute for that kind of grassroots engagement. I also had a, a, my own proposal pass as well, which is a small thing, but it requires the next leader to meet on an annual basis with every riding president by, re, by region. And the value there is we can talk about grassroots engagement, but accountability from leadership to the grassroots is also incredibly powerful and important. Yeah, I think the goal there would be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to just ensure that there's an ear on the ground, correct? You're listening to the people who represent the party locally so that you're not too disconnected at Queen's Park and just unaware. Being disconnected at Queen's Park is a major liability for any party and parties increasingly, especially when they are in government, uh, they get out of touch over time and, and they don't have that same grassroots connection if they don't actively take a, a continued interest in it. And it, it, it does take intentional action. Now, a rule like that helps that inten intentional action take place. I would say it's not just about maintaining a sense of connection, though. It's also making sure that every community and this is where the accountability comes in the, the leader has an incentive for electoral purposes to meet in some communities for sure but there's got to be an, an accountability to the grassroots membership on the leader's behalf to say you know you you aren't just accountable to queen's park and the legislature you are accountable to us you're accountable mm -hmm. to the liberal membership yeah and even in writings that the party may not um, have the best chances of winning you're still going to listen to your members in gray bruce 
Exactly. And it's, it's doubly important because you're, you're exactly right. When, when you have caucus meeting on a weekly basis, as we do in Ottawa, I'm, I'm going to be in caucus this week. And every community that is represented by a liberal has a voice and has the ear of the prime minister or the in the case of conservatives would have the ear of the premier. It's incredibly important that every community have a strong voice within the Liberal Party, whether or not that community is represented by the Liberals at Queen's Park. And so a, a, an amendment like this is a small thing, but but look, I've met my riding association as a, as a member of Parliament. I've gone to every single meeting pretty near of my riding association since I became the Liberal candidate in 2014. I think it, it, any leader should take that same approach and to say, who are, who is my team? My team are Liberal members all across this province, and I'm going to be accountable to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of why you're interested in making the jump, um, what is it? What do you find intriguing? Or what, what is the what is the kind of passion that drives you to potentially make the move from federal politics to provincial politics, but also from federal member of parliament to potentially leader of a major provincial or um, leader of a major provincial party and potentially um, the next premier of this province. We can talk about specific issues, whether it's mental health and addictions, whether it's mm -hmm. access to primary care, housing affordability and the generational mm -hmm. challenge that is. But in the end, it's a pretty simple answer and, and it comes back to a pretty simple question. How does one make the biggest difference? And I got involved in federal politics over 10 years ago and I started running in a nomination 10 years ago in late 2013 to really make the biggest difference I could. I've been a practicing commercial litigation lawyer. I studied politics and law for far too long. And I, I wanted to make a difference through politics. My first experience in politics was actually as a student and it was in the Harris years. And my, my parents were teachers and it was on the picket line with, with my parents. And you see for better. And I think in that case, demonstrably worse, what happens if you cede politics to others and the answer ultimately is participation. And 10 years ago, that meant participation at the federal level. And mm -hmm. I felt I could make a major difference. The Liberal Party was in third place. The Conservative Party of the day had a majority government, a very frustrating majority government in my view. And so the best way I could make a difference, Trudeau came along saying, I want to empower communities by empowering parliamentarians, freer votes in the House of Commons. This is how Parliament should be conducting itself. And, and, and I feel very strongly that that is, in fact, the case. And so I hustled in a nomination and I've made, I think, a, a huge difference in many different ways over the last 10 years. Now, fast forward, though, to today and all of the parallels apply at the provincial level. The Liberal Party is in desperate need of that same serious generational renewal that we saw the federal Liberals go through 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we have a very frustrating conservative majority government. I, now, I don't think there's the same mean spiritedness at times in this conservative majority government at Queen's Park, but there's a deep incompetence. I think when you look at the management of the healthcare system, when you look at even when they say the right things and I think on housing, they say the right things, but there's a, a deeply incompetent way that they go about their business in terms of implementing those things. And so how can I make the biggest difference? I, I think it is through renewing and re-energizing the Ontario Liberal Party and ensuring that our politics is about ideas, that there's mm -hmm. less partisanship in this business and that we're really focused on getting things done with competence, compassion and integrity. And we'll see where, where we'll see where this leads us. So on, on some of those ideas, one thing that that um, I think I'm fairly placing you in the YIMBY crowd in terms of housing you seem to be one of the the folks in government who who understands um that in it, it's a multifaceted issue but it is a supply issue what is your stance on 
how Ontario should handle housing affordability because it is for people like in, in my demographic really getting out of hand. It has gotten out of hand. Yeah. And the really interesting thing about the provincial level is you can make way more of a difference in many ways, given mm -hmm. the, the levers of power around zoning reside at the municipal level, but municipalities are creatures of the province. And as I say, the governor of the day, let's be fair and as nonpartisan we can be. I, I mean, I think the governor of the day is saying the right things about we need to build supply. We need to really push cities and municipalities to build more supply and to meet housing targets. I think that's all good. The federal government in fits and starts, we've got a housing accelerator that is focused on addressing NIMBYism, but it's only $4 billion across the whole country. It's going to be a very small mm -hmm. piece of the overall puzzle. The answer really is, and at the provincial level, saying governments, municipal governments in particular, are going to get out of the way of building market supply. We are not going to have exclusionary zoning that prevents developers and, and prevents builders from, from building. I think the Liberal Party should be a party that wants to build things in this province, whether it's mm -hmm. infrastructure, whether it's schools, whether it's hospitals, whether it's especially housing. And on the second front, governments do have to get back in the game, but they have to get back in the game on social housing, whether it's cooperative housing, whether mm -hmm. it's modular housing, rapid housing in the way that the feds are actually doing a pretty good job on right now. The province can do more for wraparound services, people exiting homelessness. There's a huge place for the province to play to address deep affordability. But I think at a high level, we're talking about and exclusionary zoning so we can build the supply we need and then governments should provide investments to ensure a, a meaningful percentage of that supply is below market rent but yeah but we should not be opposed and we should not be worried about developers making money going off and building the supply we need we we need that supply we yeah. need supply to match population growth i mean that is it's not overly complicated on that front yeah, um, and this is where if I had the soundboard, I would just insert the applause track because anyone who wants to get rid of exclusionary zoning is is uh, I, I'm a fan of, um, and it just seems to be it was something that was definitely talked about in the last provincial election, but then for many of us who really care about that issue, we're kind of left waiting for like the meat of whatever the proposal is that's going to actually carry that forward. Um, right. And we've got distractions, right? Like you look at the green yeah. belt and I understand what if a young person says, ah, I just want housing to be built. And, and, and I understand that the conservatives at the provincial level are playing on that, but their own housing okay. affordability task force, which does point the finger at exclusionary zoning, as, as you just said, they also said, and we can protect the green belt. So the green belt is actually this massive distraction mm -hmm. away from the core question of ending exclusionary zoning. Similarly, gutting development charges. It makes a lot of sense, actually, to use development charges to incentivize the kind of density that we want to say, yeah, we'll reduce development charges. We'll make cities whole in doing so. But we'll reduce development charges if you're adding the density that we need. You can use it as a really interesting tool to incentivize particular kinds of supply and density. But just gutting it wholesale, causing chaos at the municipal level, that does nothing to build housing. And so, as I say, they they are saying many of the right things, but the the doing of those same things is 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 leaving leaving the housing supply without the supply we need. Yeah, and a lot of commentators have been like, "Oh, however many million of millions of homes is the target? We're still not even close to." No, we're slowing. Pace. Interest rates are yeah. slowing housing starts yeah. down even further, and the governments have to work extra hard and, and get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, mu music to my ears. Um, healthcare, another big one. Um, we have about two minutes before we got to go to break, and we'll, so we'll come back to this as well. But what's your take on all of the 
hysteria headlines, um, panic that we are seeing in, in the conversation in regards to healthcare. Lots to say, and, and probably more to say than, than in two minutes. But one is to say, it's absolutely essential that we maintain public health insurance and we address mm -hmm. upselling. And, and, and I think the conservatives have identified the need to respect you know, it's got to be paid with your health card, not your credit card, that that mm -hmm. line is true, but they've got to be really concerned about upselling because the Auditor General has reports to say upselling already exists in a problematic way in the system. And I don't think we have a clear eyed way of addressing that. And I don't think it's been articulated by the, by the government of the day. On the for-profit delivery side, I think we need a more nuanced conversation about what is effective and what is efficient. Really, there are two ideas mm -hmm. we've got to carry in our heads. Equity, and that's the fairness piece about addressing upselling, making sure wealth doesn't allow you to jump the queue. But, but two is efficient. Efficiency. I think we have to embrace efficiency and innovation. Now, it just so happens in conversations I've had with David, the David Naylor's of the world and the Bob Bell's of the world and experts in the field, and expanding nonprofit community and surgery clinics probably would have been more efficient in the end than the for-profit expansion. But I think it's got to be defended on grounds of efficiency and innovation. That 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 is these are not values we should cede to others. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, do you think that some of that conversation is maybe too warped in the Canada-U.S. dichotomy? Because I feel like a lot of people, when we talk about healthcare, it's like, oh, we're Americanizing. But for a lot of us, we might be looking at it going, well, what if we do what Europe does? And in addition, maybe look at what works in the United States. So there are yeah. nonprofit HMOs, for example, that do a much better job that if you want to get a specialist, and you want to book an appointment with a specialist, you're not doing it by fax. You're, there, there's oh. a way of communicating with your healthcare providers in an electronic fashion. There's a way of booking yes. meetings in, much, in, in, a, in a much easier fashion. The, the care and quality of care that you're getting is much speedier. And this is in a we got to go to break. Setting. we got to go to break, but we're going to come back to that because you touched on a very good point. You, you just touched on what is the, the bane of my existence. Nothing grinds my gears more than someone in the public service telling me that I have to communicate with the government via fax. Will you transition us away <laughs> from the fax machine? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, one would hope it would be done before I get there, but I'll, it's obvious and it should have been done years ago. And I was a lawyer before politics and I remember being in motion scheduling court as a young lawyer. And there are dozens of other lawyers in the room and you're sitting there thinking, so we're all showing up to schedule something and we're all billing somewhere between 300 and 600 bucks an hour, depending yeah. upon the lawyer. And what a massive amount of inefficiency that is born ultimately by people who are paying their lawyers and not necessarily by the public, but the public too, because the public's paying for the, the judge and the clerk to be there and, and the registrar. So huge inefficiencies that are resolved by some pretty basic scheduling technology. And we don't have to reinvent wheels here. Other jurisdictions, and I mentioned the US nonprofit HMOs, but all around the world, there are e-referrals. All around the world, things are done in a more uh, technologically, I don't even want to say advanced. We, emails existed for many, many years. Uh, so uh, there are obviously efficiencies, efficiencies to be gained. Now, I think the bigger question is about spending because we see the accountability officer at the provincial level talk about how there's a shortfall in spending on healthcare big dollars are thrown around one way or the other. And there are some core challenges in the healthcare system. We technology is a lack of technology is one of them. But but the biggest challenge is actually a labor force challenge. And it, it is, and again, this gets to the deep incompetence. When when you look at nurses, let's just say, we'll take that one category mm -hmm. of worker. 
they are not paid in Ontario in keeping with the national average. They are overworked and stressed, obviously, with everything that's happened over the last number of years. And we are losing nurses. We don't have the supply of nurses that we need in the system, despite the fact that there are huge savings when you have a nurse practitioner, say, do the work for on a family health team that in many cases a, a doctor would otherwise yeah. be doing. So there are huge efficiencies that could be gained and we aren't paying them enough. And so we do need more money in the system to pay nurses at the same time. If you have a labor force challenge, you got to pay people a bit better to, to be competitive. Not only are we not paying yeah. them a bit better, we actually have legislation in place that caps their wages. So I look at it and I look at this as the, one of the biggest challenges in the healthcare system is this labor force challenge. And not only are we not talking about it as a the provincial government is not talking about it in a serious way, but there are measures they put in place that actually exacerbate that challenge. So there are many big picture pieces. There are challenges around the aging population. There are challenges around the lack of access to a family doctor and and these are uniting mm -hmm. conversations if, you, if when i speak to someone in northern ontario or i speak to someone in southwestern ontario or eastern ontario it's access to a family doctor that is their greatest challenge or it's mental health and addictions in their community that is the second challenge that i hear about yeah. and if you are a government yeah. wanting to address issues for people all across this province you got to address those two issues and and i don't see the action that we ought to be seeing no um Critics on healthcare. No, no, this is a really good one because critics, some would argue, well, we have an administrative bloat problem. We've, we're losing care providers, those who actually provide care, nurses and doctors, and the ones who we desperately need. And yet we have administrative growth uh, across the healthcare system and it doesn't match. We're, and and I want your take on it. Is that an accurate assessment? I'm not in the weeds on how this works, so I don't know. Um, but I'm curious: is that a how do we how do we rebalance that if it's accurate, so that we do have more people who actually provide care, the specialists, the surgeons, the nurses, and and shift that balance so that people can get quicker service, better outcomes. It's a good question. I'm not sure I have the best answer to it yet. So when you read reports from the Ontario Hospital Association, they will say, we have squeezed out every efficiency that we can. We are we are not going to be in a position to squeeze out a greater number of efficiencies. In other parts of the healthcare system, mm -hmm. there, there maybe are efficiencies. And, and maybe there are efficiencies when you look at the Ontario hospital system, not within hospitals, but if you were to, for example, look at the number of hospital beds taken up by people who actually need an alternate level of care, and you were then ensuring that there yeah. was the in-community care at a lower cost available, then maybe there are efficiencies to be to yeah. be, to be be realized. But on the administrative side, I, I'm not sure just yet. So that, that'll require a deeper dive on my part to, to get to the bottom of. A conversation for another day. Um, yeah, for sure. We have to talk about um, election interference. Uh, and I'm bringing this up to you because one, you are a federal member of parliament. So you are in the weeds on on everything that's coming and going on this file. Um, new reporting has come out that this has transcended to the local level. This is out in BC. I think it's probably fair to say that there is something coming or something that has existed at the provincial level. As, as a prospective leader of, um, of, of a major party in Ontario, are you concerned about election interference and how does one safeguard that provincial level of democracy away from that type of international meddling, whether it be from China or other 
nefarious sources, whether that's Russia or anyone else who would have a vested interest in trying to stack the cards in their favor. So everyone ought to be concerned about this issue, so long as it's not a panicked concern, because election interference mm -hmm. has existed for a very long time. Bad actors, including other state actors that are adversaries to Canada or have mm -hmm. a vested interest in, in causing chaos and disruption in democracies, they will target Canada, they will target other democracies, and they will do their best to interfere. And we have systems in place at the federal level in particular. There have been systems put in place to coordinate with other countries, including there's a G7 rapid response unit. There is we regular coordination across security agencies that, that the federal government has helped to facilitate. So no one should leave a conversation like this thinking there's nothing that is happening or no actions that have been taken. But with everything that we've read about and including everything I've read about in the media recently, of course, we need to redouble our efforts. And I think it comes down to a few different actions. One, we need greater international coordination. What works elsewhere? What we're, what, what's worked here? And how do we, it can't just be a G7 conversation. How do we as democratic countries make sure that we are protecting not only federal elections, but everything down ballot, provincial and municipal elections as well, making sure there isn't successful interference. Two, making sure that we are properly resourcing enforcement efforts if that's if that's the issue i you know if you are seeing yeah. what we saw in the united states like people people have gone to jail in the united states in recent years for domestic complicity in foreign interference efforts and we yeah, haven't oh, seen yeah. any of that right so when we see accusations leveled and I, I get frustrated with the drip drip in the media because if there's something behind this that certain domestic actors were complicit in foreign interference they should go to jail and there should be proper proper law enforcement investigations. Yeah. The last thing is uh, at the Elections Ontario, Elections Canada level, the stories that we've heard in, in, in recent weeks and months have all have really been focused on nomination contests in some in some mm -hmm. respects. And I do think obviously political parties should be masters of their own domain, but it is troubling to think that you have a really respected, strong regulatory body in Elections Canada, for example, they could play a role in overseeing, not dictating the when, not dictating the where, but when the process is determined by the party, the an independent third party like Elections Canada would oversee that process to make sure there there is no interference and, and there's no meddling. So I think there are some practical ways now, I've just riffed off a few, but I'm no expert. And really this comes down to pulling in a, a team of experts to say, what's the way forward? So whether it's a public inquiry, which I think is increasingly likely, I, I don't see what yeah. political option there is beyond that at this point, given everything that, that's dripping through the media. So maybe we end up there and, and that's the forum for it. If not that, mm -hmm. some alternative, trusted, credible forum for experts to come yeah. together and make sure we are on the firmest footing we can be. And we're again, we're not the only country facing this. So it really has to be, I think, a collaborative effort with the Australians, the New Zealands, the, the Americans yeah. or, or EU allies and, and, and every every democratic country that is going to face these same challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's um, the elections, Canada, elections, Ontario angle. When I first saw you tweet about it immediately, I was like, oh, this that could solve a lot of the shenanigans that we see in the nomination races. I mean, it doesn't take very like someone can very quickly Google the the provincial conservative nomination meetings from the Patrick Brown era to see the type of shenanigans that that went on um and it is possible not saying that that was foreign interference but it was 
there was certainly some funny business. Um, would that be a way to allow for the parties to fundraise and get new members, but also do so in a way that is above bar and, and, and uh, meets the expectations of uh, kind of our democratic institutions? It's certainly an interesting one. Has there been any pushback on that? Has, has anyone reacted? I haven't, like, I haven't, no, no, I haven't no. seen or heard any pushback. It's interesting. We recently tasked the parliamentary budget officer with playing a role in assessing the to cost election promises that parties put forward. So we said to an independent officer of Parliament, you now have a role to play in the election process to make sure that mm -hmm. there is greater information sharing ultimately and in greater transparency of costing to the Canadian public come election time. So I don't see why it would be so far afield to say something similar to Elections Canada to say, yeah, look, you are tasked generally with focusing on Canadian ele federal elections, but you're going to mm -hmm. have a role to play in the nomination process. Now, as I say, the parties are going to dictate when a nomination would happen. The parties would dictate yep. who gets greenlit, who's redlit. There's, there's still parties yep. will still have the overwhelming sway in what happens in these things. But is the right person voting with the right ID? Are people mm -hmm. on the spending memberships side, paid? Being over... yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Are, are, are we enforcing this in the proper way to ensure that the rules set by the parties are being complied with? Uh, from a regulatory perspective, we have a regulatory body that that, that does this and has experience and expertise in this. Why, why not use it? Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, I often gripe about government inefficiencies and when things don't work well. But I will say, Elections Canada is not one of those institutions that has a track record of being awful. They're they're pretty good. They're generally if pretty we, good. Yeah, and if we and if we can't spend a bit of a bit of cash on making sure that our elections are run properly, I I think we're missing the overall point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like, well, that's probably worth it. Uh, especially in the context of the conversation um, we're having today. Um, we have about three or so minutes. Um, this this may be a tough question, but what is, and I only ask this because I've asked this to other former either heads of state or heads of sub-sovereign units. What's a policy that you would be willing, that you would really want to implement and you would do it even if it meant you knew you were going to lose, but it lasted forever. Hmm. I, three things jumped to mind immediately. So we talked about housing okay. and, and like, I, yeah. I really do believe, and I don't think it's popular everywhere, but I do think really putting an end to exclusionary zoning practices is really mm -hmm. important Two, I, I really think we've got to find a way to make sure that, and there's a recent report from the UN on, on climate. I really think we've got to find a way to put the politics of this to bed and just make sure we're all pulling in the right direction as it relates to affordability mm -hmm. or as it relates to job creation, as it relates to reducing emissions. And then the last one's small, but I really want to make sure that we, you talk about this big picture healthcare conversation, there are all sorts of things to fix. So I think we should, you know, treat drug use as a health issue. And I'll go to the wall on that mm -hmm. uh, for a very long time. Yeah. I also think we should be focused on preventative health in a serious way. And that means schools, hospitals, long-term care, we should really have 
healthy food in there and for kids in particular it should just be fully accessible universal healthy and and it should be the best for our kids so i don't know if there i don't know how many votes there are in that but i i maybe i feel more strongly about this with a six and three-year-old but i uh yep. there, there there are a few there that i that i i want to see through and 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 look but you have to win elections but you've got to have a set of ideas first and elections are in service to those ideas in politics we sometimes get this backwards and we we come up with certain yeah. ideas and we say ideas are in service to elections and it's no 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 it's, it's backwards we, we win elections for reasons and we got to have those reasons first i just appreciate the fact that you had an answer because a lot of a lot of times some of your colleagues, both on your team and across the aisle, um, sometimes appear to lack any of those ideas. And and it becomes increasingly frustrating as a voter to be like, okay, well, what what do you actually believe or want to achieve and what's worth it and all of those questions. Um, oh, yeah, anyway, I got a long it's, list. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure. How, how much time uh, it's you It's always got? great. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not enough in the next uh, 10, 15 seconds, but it's been a pleasure. Uh, as always, thank you for being on the program, and uh, we'll have to have you on again as, um, as you potentially become the next leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario. So thank you. Yeah, th thanks. I appreciate it. Look forward to coming back.